Happy September, Revelers. I recorded this in late July. Oh my gosh. I do not know where the time went, except I did have a couple weeks off for vacation and some other stuff, life, COVID, I don't know, happened. But anyway, finally, the episode with Mr. Robert Pachilio is here. And one of my favorite things about this episode is he kept calling it the show. I'm on the show. And I love that. And I got to start saying that more often. Well, without further ado, I hope that you like hearing from the first interviewee that was a Mount Carmel teacher when we were there. Hello, and welcome to Revel Revel. I am Lauren Drabble, and today my guest is Bob Pachilio. He and I never knew each other at Mount Carmel, but that was the point of origin. So we will talk about how we know each other in this crazy world. That's right. I'm glad to be on Rebel Rebel. As soon as I hear that, I think about David Bowie. And, uh, and then, of course, as soon as I see your name, uh, Lauren, I think about our days at the Mount and uh, all the years, my 32 years there. It was the old. You retired, right? I retired. It was. Uh, I was asked to go to other high schools, and I always demurred and said, "No way. Uh, this is my kind of place. Blue collar kids, blue collar parents. It's kind of my crowd." Well, I, gosh, I have so many things off the bat to ask you. Let me just say first, on the record, mm-hmm. I woke up twenty minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry. I got you. So I have. You are my. I don't know. Like fifteenth recording. They're not all published yet, obviously. Mm-hmm. And every single person has shown up late, except for you, the yeah. one person that I overslept for. We, we, we teachers, we, we, we ex-teachers, we're ready at the bell. I mean, you ding, are. Round, you know, round one. <laughs> so you've had all your juices flowing all morning, listening mm-hmm. to David Bowie in your head and all that. And I had dogs wake me up in the middle of the night last night and I couldn't fall back asleep. So that's you know, that. That is a classic COVID experience. I mean, I cannot tell you how many people I know that their sleep is just not the same in these last uh, six, seven months. We're waking up at three o'clock. We're, a lot of it is we're just so sedentary during the days that we just don't burn the usual energy that we burn. Just And then and between that and all of the anxiety of COVID, and the political world that we live in, it's uh, been a very, t- a very tumultuous time. Yeah. So I said, how are you? And you said, you know, give people your COVID answer. My COVID answer is um, when people ask me how I am, I always say, I'm, you know, I'm doing great. All things considered here in the COVID era, um, you know, you're, you're socially distancing, you're masking up and it's very hard uh, when you're uh, born to be a people person to uh, have that taken from you, very hard. Um, it, it's interesting because you know when I finished when I finished my 32 years of teaching, I think the hardest thing was missing kids, missing the the, the vibe with kids. And now it's like <laughs> you're missing your friends. You're you know you've got three people you can talk to and hug. Right, exactly. So, but I'm here on Rebel Rebel, and I can audio you know hug people. So, yeah. We can, we can at least talk like this way around the world, mm-hmm. which is definitely helping me, I have to say that. And it's nice to not just talk to people that I've known forever, but known of forever, because I knew of you for sure, but I never had your class. 
I went to some speech and debate events. Um, mm. So I feel like I saw you in action. Mm, action figure. Yeah. And I feel like I, I think I probably know the image that you wanted to convey to the world. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. I remember a student wrote me a letter once about that. Amy Fowler. She wrote and said, Mr. Pachilio, in class, it's as if you walk into the room, sit in Captain Kirk's chair, and billow out orders, and we just all jump to it. And before we know it, we're on warp three. <laughs> I guess that it was the impression I gave the kids. I don't know. And that was, she was probably in speech and debate then. No, this was just a, one of my regular kids. Um, I had her for two years, though. I have to admit, I had her when she was a freshman, and then I had her when she was a junior. So by that point, she, she was a regular on the show, you know. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, it's funny, funny you, you keep letters from kids and um, um, and I then when I retired I put them in a giant book and uh, but Lauren uh, but Amy Fowler's letter always uh, struck me because Amy was one of those uh, wonderful kids who was so smart but um, the box that school was in was hard for her to, to work with and she uh, um, and uh, because I'm out of the box I think she just sort of said hey there's another guy. <laughs> You got a box I can fit into. So I like that. And I love that you guys keep letters. I, um, as you know, we have lots of teachers from our graduating class, or, you know, we, we socialize with a few people outside of our class. But the main thing is that Mount Carmel from 1987 is kind of a cult. That and, was a big year. And I would love to hear it from your perspective. What do you mean by big gear? Why do you think we all talk to each other on Facebook well, and such? If I remember correctly, that's the Pete Taylor, um, Hal Perloff. Um, there's a, a whole bunch more coming in my head now. Um, but I went to that reunion, and, I, and you must have been there. Um, this was about, I want to say about five years ago, and I just walked in the room, and uh, I, I was going to use the word kids, and I shouldn't. But the kids just like surrounded me, like um, they were just so warm and um, uh, memories of my class, songs I taught, of uh, speech and debate. Uh, you know, that, that year um, uh, we, were, we went to the national championships at, in, uh, with the Hal Perloff and he, was, he finished sixth in the nation. And I, had wished, I wish that he could have made it out uh, because I, I, I work with, I work with the cream of the crop in debate anyway. And um, uh, he, was, he was the best debater, I, speaker, debater I had ever worked with. And, and that says a lot. Um, he's going to be in, inducted into the uh, Mount Carmel Hall of Fame um, as soon as we can like, have a reinduction um, because um, with COVID, they've had to postpone some stuff. But um, we just had that uh, for the first time uh, last June. C.C. Moore, Billy Bean, myself, um, uh, a number of uh, folks, but C.C. was the class in 1987. Um, so, I mean, it was, it was just one of those really magical groups of people that, uh, I don't know, just clicked that year. 
I agree. Of course, I'm biased, but Mm -hmm. I totally agree. (laughs) So what brought you to Mount Carmel in the first place? Tell us about your life before before coming to Mount Carmel. Well, I was was at Cal State Fullerton trying to decide if I was going to be a communications major uh, or a speech major or a teacher. And uh, I remember exactly where I was. I don't know if most people do, but I remember exactly where I was when I made the decision to become a teacher. I was on the seventh floor of the humanities building. And I said, and then between some, between the two semesters, and I said, that's it, I'm just going to go be a teacher. And um, Dave Stein, with the original principal at Mount Carmel, was the principal at La Mirada the year before, La Mirada High School. And I had contacted him, and he said, come, come on down. And uh, I was all of 21, and I, my interview lasted like five minutes. And uh, I had driven all the way down from Orange County. And... Uh, and boom, I was a teacher at 21. Um, I was only four years older than the seniors that I was teaching. At those days, I had, Lauren, I had hair, uh, long hair and a beard, and uh, like a lot of people then. And, um, and I stayed the course for 32 years. Um, I was very fortunate to, to teach um, freshman English, honors freshman English, regular freshman English. And then I made the decision to uh, not only to coach speech and debate, but then after I left that, I did the literary magazine and that was really a lot of fun. I always liked having some kind of group that I could hang with, you know, or they could hang with me. And in 1998, I was Senate County teacher of the year. And that was really, thank you. It was really a big deal. I was the first Mount Carmel teacher to ever uh, win that honor. And it was wonderful. I mean, the faculty totally embraced me. I mean, I'll never forget in the morning, John Marankovich, who was the basketball coach and John, I think most people, most of the kids would know it's a pretty tough nut. And not only was he tough on kids, but sometimes he was tough on teachers. He walked up to me at like seven o'clock in the morning in the faculty lounge. And he just looked at me with his little cup of coffee that he always had. And he said, well, they finally got it right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I appreciate it. I still remember it to this day. And then um, that was interesting because it got me into teaching at national. I was, I taught some fancy named course. I don't know, whatever. It was really, it was basically how to explain to, to college kids how to teach high school because they had, they really don't, you know, the education courses are dumb for the most part. Um, the kids think that they're going to teach college level to high school kids. And they don't even understand that rule one of teaching is that you, they, that you have to have passion for what you're teaching, followed quickly by rule two. You have to have passion for the kids. And if you do those two things, then the third thing will happen. And that is that the kids will have, will have passion for both what you're teaching and you. They'll, they will walk through the fire for you. And, you know, you explain that to, to these college kids and they're like, uh, okay, um, that's not in the book. I go, I know, that's not in the book. <laughs> that's, but if you don't do that, you're dead. <laughs> and they'll know. They'll know if you're not telling them the truth. And I did that for a good uh, 20 years while my wife and I, and we had two kids and uh, they're not kids anymore. They're 30 years old, uh, 28, 30 years old, respectively, out in the world doing good things. And um, then in 2010, I, they gave us a golden handshake and said, adios, why don't you, uh, why don't you leave and uh, we'll, we'll pay you a whole year salary to, to hit the road. And uh, I was only 55 at the time, but <laughs> I was 55, but you know, in teacher years, I felt like I was like 70, you know, it's like dog years. And um, uh, I, I think it was also the manner in which I taught. 
uh, you know, it was five shows a day. You're up, you're up, you're out in your street clothes, and you're, you know, between uh, myself and the music I taught, the English literature I taught, I was, I was on my feet a lot. Um, so I took the I took the deal, but I've kind of stayed reengaged. I go to well, the big transition then was. Uh, right when I was finishing my teaching, and one of my alumni, um, Jim Reifus, from class of, I think, 84, had sat me down and bought me lunch and said, so when are you going to write a book? I had been speaking at conventions, you know, uh, teacher conventions all the time. And, and I said, well, what do, you, what do you mean? He goes, you should write a book. You know, you, you've been playing small cafes, uh, your little metaphor cafes for, for all these years. And so, uh, you know, a lot of people thought I would write a book about how to be a teacher. And instead, I just wrote a fictional book about a teacher with an Italian last name, uh, called it Meetings at the Metaphor Cafe, but I told the story through, the, uh, through four kids. Um, and they were kind of an, uh, an encapsulation of, of all the kids I had taught. Um, that became a big hit. I, had a, I decided to self-publish it when all the agents that I had contacted said that, you know, you're not speaking, you're, write, you're writing, you're not writing like a kid. And I said, oh, really? You think that, huh? Uh, when was the last time you were in a classroom here in your Manhattan office um, uh, being a literary snob, basically? Because the kids talk like I talk. And uh, it w I had made the decision not to overly, overtly curse because I wanted the book to be uh, approved by school boards. And, and I had the narrators, the kids, say, say in narration, you know, we're writing this book for our teacher. And... Um, and, and we can't really curse in front of him. It seemed awkward. So it allowed me to use that kind of trick. But their lives were just, I mean, you, you know, I mean, kids who, whose fathers just walked out on their family or whose fathers were in Iraq or Iran or they didn't even know where their father was because they were militarily deployed. Um, boys whose parents wanted them to go into business. And when the boys wanted to, when a boy wanted to be a writer, um, and a Persian girl who, you know, her, her parents were like, your brothers get everything. You, you know, you're just, you just need to get married. And, and, and those, those four characters, um, they embodied a lot of what, um, of what I faced every day at school, what the kids were, were all about. So uh, the book was very successful, um, even though we never were able to quite, even though my agent was never able to quite mass market it, it's still selling and it got me going. That was in 2008. And I'm, I just finished my fifth novel. Um, first two were both young adult books, Metaphor Cafe books. But then I wrote um, The Restoration, and I just recently published Meet Me at Moonlight Beach. And both of those are, I, I kind of classify them as contemporary literature, but um, I've had agents tell me they're mm, romance, uh, historical, American history, romance books, um, I disagree with them. I, I go to the romance section in Barnes and Noble and I look at them. And if the woman's bodice isn't ripped open and the guy doesn't have giant pictorial muscles, um, it's, you know, I'm not in that, you know, I'm not in that vein, but, um, but I will admit that um, somebody just recently wrote me, um, a former student said, you know, the thing about your books, Mr. Pachilio is they, um, they really make me feel better. They, 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 they um, and her exact words, I believe, were they, um, they bring closure and they bring a satisfying ending, make me feel better about the world. And I think that um, that's kind of always been my goal as a teacher and as a writer. I mean, I, I'm willing to go to the dark side, but 
but the roller coaster just doesn't crash at the bottom. Uh, <laughs> roller coaster comes back up again. And, um, uh, and, and it's not that I have to have a, happy, a happily ever after ending, but I think that I, I, uh, I, saw, I saw enough of the dark side uh, in the lives of my students and, uh, and in the lives of some people I know. And I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't need to, I don't need to be there. Um, I need to make sure that my writing is involved with it, but doesn't, it's not where I live. And so that takes me to, to now. I just finished a, a, a book that I actually wrote as a reader's theater back when I was 21. It's called Whitewash, and I'm, I'm actually trying the mainstream publication again with, liter with literary agents. And uh, this one's a story about, uh, it's a courtroom drama <clears throat> uh, that deals with freedom of speech and the ability of, uh, how people can talk with regard to race and racism. And uh, so uh, it'll, it's a very, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed that when I wrote this 20, when I was 21, that I'd be still talking about this today, but it's even more apropos today. Well, I hope it gets picked up then since it's mm -hmm. so topical. Um, did, did you have to, rewrite it a lot because mm -hmm. you wrote it so long ago yeah i dusted off the old manuscript and um interestingly you know it had been performed in every decade since i i, I did it in, in the 70s and then it was performed in the 80s and then it was performed uh in the 90s by uh, karen harkins she was the teacher at mount carmel and asked for the script and then it was then at mount carmel it was turned into a play they kind of they i allowed them to rewrite it and they rewrote it into a play so it was performed in four different decades so it's always sort of been kind of hot material and i have a number of friends who said to me when are you going to novelize that mm -hmm. and so i really lauren i only took about maybe 30 percent of the original script that really still worked and and it was also you know when you're 21 you write something you, you have you're a little more sophisticated. And I also thought that um, some of the stuff I wrote just wasn't very legal, really. I mean, uh, so I have a number of, um, I mean, legal that, uh, you know, I didn't really understand how how lawyers would speak and all the technicality. So I had a couple of former students who are attorneys um, read through the script and, and say, you have to change this, you have to change that. And, and that all helped. And we'll see how it goes. Wow, so that was a great overview of your whole adult life. There pretty you go. much. Yeah. And, and that's a wrap. We'll see, yeah. we'll see you back on Rebel Rebel next week. <laughs> <laughs> so now let's dig deeper into the details uh, with the fate, coincidence, the universe mm -hmm. acting maybe behind the scenes, maybe smacking you over the top mm -hmm. of your head kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. You mentioned sure. that you remember just that time that you decided to become a teacher, but what was going on with you and how do you, how did that revelation come to you? Well, you know, like a lot of, I think a lot of people in my generation and I'm 64 now, so people can kind of figure out, okay, that means he was born in 1955. So, okay, he's definitely a boomer. We, we grew up with parents who loved us and their, their basic view of life was, we brought you into the world, we'll feed you, we love you, now go away and don't ask us to be friends you know <laughs> i'm not gonna tell you anything about sex either okay so uh you know my parents my father my parents were tessie and louie and uh my father louie 
would say, you had to be a lawyer, you know? And my mother would say, oh, I don't know. He just wanted to get married. And, okay, so um, they were from New York? No, Brooklyn. I mean, Brooklyn, we yeah. were born in Brooklyn, and then we moved to New Jersey thinking that that was a safer place. Uh, then we escaped New Jersey knowing that it was actually the, the leading toxic dump state in America at the time. And we went to East Los Angeles thinking that was a safer place. Finally, I left my parents and came to San Diego, and that was a safer place. But anyway, I, I bring all of that up because <clears throat> they had their visions of what they wanted me to be. And I had... I. I just I didn't want to be any of that, but I wasn't sure what to do. Uh, however, uh, my high school debate coach was instrumental in picking me out. And like, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't the smartest. I could talk. That was about it. And I, I guess she, he thought that I was nice. And when I was given a law school scholarship, I turned that down to be a teacher. And um, that was that was a key decision. And I think that I became a teacher because I just, um, while I was going to college, I was working at another high school, working with kids, and I just liked it. I, you know, I just, that was my, matter of fact, the funny thing is that I've always admired, you know, Atticus Finch and, and lawyers and the whole thing. But, and I used to tell my, my parents, I said, you know, mom and dad, I know you, I mean, you want me to be a lawyer, but I, I, I am. Every day I, I go to court, five sessions. And the, the jury is out there, and I aim to win every case, just like Perry Mason. And and that's that. And and the, the difference between me and lawyers is all my all my clients are innocent. I don't have to ask them. So in 1998, when I was a teacher of the year, and they showed that on live television here in San Diego, I think my parents finally got it. Then, um, but you know, one of the things that, in terms of destiny and fate, that I used to tell my students was at a certain point in your life. You have to make up your mind how you're going to paddle the boat and what stream you're going to paddle up because your, your parents have pushed you off and everything and they may tell you to go this way, but that is just not, not where you want to go. And there are many, many kids, many people who follow that path and they're, they're, they're constantly unhappy because they're doing what they're not doing what they want to do. They're doing what they feel they have to do. And I know that sometimes that's, that's part of life too. I get it. But when you have that moment in your life, when you're 21, 25, whatever, when you get a choice and you choose the wrong route, it's hard paddling back and re rerouting yourself. And I was very fortunate that I chose the right path at the time. And whether it's marriage or your career or children, you just... Um, you just need to follow your North Star. And that's, I will tell you one quick story about a, a young man, uh, John. I won't give you his last name, but uh, he graduated. Uh, he, he came to me his senior year and he said, Mr. Pichetto, I have a terrible situation. And I go, what's that? He said, well, I've been accepted to uh, the military academy in Annapolis. And I said, oh, that's great. And he goes, and I've been accepted to Cal Berkeley. And I said, well, that's, wow, that is great. Of course, those are kind of two separate things, you know, you <laughs> Cal Berkeley and, and what, so you know what's the problem, John? And he said, "Well, my my father, his dream has always been that I go to the military academy, and uh, my dream is that I go to Berkeley." And here's this guy, a football player, tough guy, and he just burst out crying in my classroom, you know. And I'm like, um, "Well, John, I wish that I had a, a crystal ball that I could just say, okay, here I'm looking into your future, and, and if you go this way." All I can tell you is um, you just, you may be your father's son, 
you're not an indentured servant. You've got to follow your heart. And um, whether, you know, whether your dad can understand, it might take him years. My parents didn't understand my decision for two or three years. And I don't know whether they really got it until they see, saw me on TV win that award. And all of a sudden, my father, the light bulb went off his head like, oh, geez, this is a big deal. Oh, Tessie, look, it's on TV. You know, um, what did he win? Did he get a car? <laughs> <laughs> what, what was your dad's profession? See, he was a salesman, or I should say a jack of all trades. I mean, he had like 50 jobs. I don't even know. You know, when, when you're out of Brooklyn and you're Italian and your parents barely graduate from high school, and actually they argue with each other whether they did or not. You, know, you did. No, you did. Oh. You know, they, they were scrappers. And, of course, in those days, your mothers didn't work and fathers just, you know. Uh, <clears throat> so... It was, and they were children of, of the depression. So, I mean, money mattered. You know, your mom had like 72 pieces of soap from every hotel she ever went to that she stole, you know, because you never know when you're going to run out of soap. And <laughs> I don't think I ever used a bar of soap uh, until I was like college. Um, uh, but anyway, um, so, you know, that was the kind of environment that I grew up in. I, uh, and I think a lot of, I, I related a lot to the kids who uh, were um, quote unquote minority kids or immigrant kids because, like I said, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> Italian. I mean, you know, we had nothing. Uh, you know, we were lucky we had meatballs with the pasta, you know. I mean, uh, matter of fact, sometimes I would say to them when I started class, I'm really all racist if you think about it. You know, Italy is right near Mesopotamia, kind of. So, I mean, we're, we're all the same, you know. <laughs> I got olive skin, you know. Um, I get the Filipino kids, you know, love Filipino food. Um, you know, they're like brothers and sisters to me. It's just down the road a piece. And you do this because um, as a teacher, you want to have an inclusive classroom. You want those kids to know, think, to understand that it, that we are family, and I got all my sisters and me. And uh, if you say it enough times, and you talk to them about uh, about their world, you get there. Going back to your how you came to Mount Carmel story, you mentioned the principal. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't recognize that name. Dave Stone. Yeah. And how did you know him? Well, he was the principal at La Mirada High School, where I was when I went to college kind of following in my father's footsteps in this respect, I had like a bunch of jobs, you know, you know, you worked at the library. I worked at a Montessori school. I worked at La Mirada high school as an assistant debate coach to, for my debate coach who had left the high school I went to and was over there. And uh, Mr. Stein saw me and said, you're young. I'm going to this new school in San Diego. I want a debate program. So kid, when you've got your credential, call me. And yeah. I, so, I mean, I was one of those people who I feel really badly for young people today wanting to get into teaching because I was able to go through so many hoops. I mean, Mr. Stein said, you know, just take these classes. And I said, well, I don't, I haven't even had student teaching yet. And he said, don't worry about that. Well, here's a guy you contact at UC Irvine, you write a few papers, you come down out of my school, you do your student teaching while you're teaching. I go, okay, so I, I'm, I'm a teacher. I'm not a student teacher. Right, we'll, we'll get right through that. And um, 
and I started the debate program. So, and nowadays, oh my God, these poor kids. Recently, I, my, one of the last classes I taught was for Teach for America. Um, National University had about a dozen kids that, from University of Hawaii all the way to Cornell who were in some form of student teaching. And they, you know, they, they asked me to meet them uh, uh, in the classroom as opposed to online teaching. And I did. They were wonderful, this group. Um, and they were so nice to talk to kids uh, who, uh, they, were, they look at me and go, so you're a real teacher. <laughs> you're, not a re you're not like a retired administrator who hasn't taught for 35 years. Like, no, no. I just taught today. <laughs> I'm tired. Uh, <laughs> what do you want to know, kids? And, um, and I would give them, uh, I would tell them how the real world works and what you really do. And uh, uh, one funny story was that they were all having, of course, they're having all discipline problems. And I said, all right, well, we got to talk about that. I said, the first thing you don't do is you don't write a referral. And they're like, they're stunned at me. Like, what do you mean, you don't write a referral? He said, as soon as you write a referral, you're telling all those kids, you're not in control. And some administrator needs to show up and, like, you know, batten down the hatches. No, that's not what you do. What you do is you give your come to Jesus speech. And they all... <laughs> Here are these kids from Cornell and uh, University of Nebraska, and they're like, well, what is that? Well, and I explained to them, I said, you, you take the kids, and the first time you give an assignment and they don't do it, you take the group that hasn't done it, you take them outside, Lauren, how to get them around you in a huddle, and you ask each one of them to tell you why they didn't do it. And d tell me the truth, too, kids. You know, tell me you're homeless. Tell me your parents are on crack. Tell me you sex, drugs, and rock and roll in your house. You can tell me anything. I don't care. Because it's nothing I haven't already heard multiple times. And so they go around, and, of course, their heads would get down, and they, they feel guilty. And you go, oh, you feel guilty. Go, good, guilt. That is what I need from you, kids. Because I like, I like you. I want to make a difference in your life. And, so, and you're just not working right now, so you should feel guilty. Now, the, the national people were looking at me like, well, what do you do with the kids that are in your classroom? I said, oh, that's the best part. They're all looking out the window thinking you're tearing their heads off. <laughs> and they're, they're like, wow, look, at look, they're all they're crying out there. What is he doing? And <laughs> I said, so you're going to win. And that's what you do when, when you, you talk to them, not at them. I guess Dave Stein saw that, that in me. That young, all that young energy and exuberance and said, I'm going to bring that kid down here. Even though I really didn't know what I was doing at 21, I had the right mindset. If you work hard and, um, and you care, you can, you'll smarten up. I think most people nowadays sort of have a, a word that means everything. Like you boil everything down, the essence of what's important to you. And for me, it's willingness. Mm -hmm. And you seem like you had the willingness to not just figure out how to do the job, but to be a good teacher. Well, speak, I'm glad you said the word willingness, because above my door, I stole this from a great teacher, Marva Collins, uh, who was working at the Ida B. Wells School. And the expression was, my I will is more important than my IQ. And I would tell the kids that all the time, because I, I mean, I terrible SAT scores. Um, math, all I can do is subtract, you know. Um, I add once in the month and then I subtract the rest of the month, you know. Um, and, uh, but I will beat them to the draw every time because I, I, my, of my determination. 
And, you know, you'll be looking at me, I would say this to the kids, and saying, why is he smarter than I am when he, no, he's not. What did he do? And the answer is, I just outwork him. Desire, it's all about that. And you can take, uh, you can take kids uh, that just don't know that they have all that and, get, and inject that in them. One of my favorite alumni uh, who is from a class right after yours, Frank Lopez, Dr. Frank Lopez, he, um, his, he was my first Filipino student and he became a doctor and he's a doctor in Manhattan now. And you know, his parents wanted him to just be a pharmacist. That's it, you, you, be a pharmacist. And he, you know, so he did Doctors Without Borders um, and he is now, you know, he's working right there in the heart of the COVID world. And uh, I admire him greatly. I've con been connecting with him a number of times. Um, and in my classroom, I had two pictures of Frank, big ones. Uh, one was in his scrubs and one was with his white jacket, you know, this said Dr. Lopez. And I would look at all my kids and I have five Filipino kids or maybe 10 in the room. And I'd say, see that guy? That guy, his parents were born in the Philippines and he was determined to be a doctor, not a pharmacist. And look where he is. So what's, what's the matter you? <laughs> Don't tell me you can't get what you want. So you think your word is determination? Yeah, determination, desire, willingness. Those are, those are that's it, man. It's all about, uh, and it's a, it, it, I think also, you know, um, heart and soul. I think that one of the things my, uh, my Teach to America kids would say is, wait a minute, with this voice you're using with us, is this the voice you're using in your classroom? Because this isn't sound like a teacher voice. And I go, oh, yeah, this is the voice. So you talk to your kids like you're talking to us? I go, well, what do you think? Why wouldn't I? <laughs> Why wouldn't I? Yeah. What other voice do you think I have? And they, I think what they were trying to say was, you're not trying to be a pretend person. You're not. Of course, when you are a teacher and a writer, there is a certain... Um, there is a stage presence you have. I mean, that young lady we began the show with who thought I was Captain Kirk. Um, uh, yes, there's a command that you have. Um, but once the bell rings, everything softens and you just, you just become Mr. Pachilio, you know. So did you ever, and I'm not saying that you did this every semester, but I'm wondering if you ever thought to yourself, I wonder who the universe is going to put in my classroom this semester or this year. Mm. Uh, I always wondered that. Um, you know, I should tell you that um, in 32 years teaching, I never threw a perfect game. In other words, I never had one year where someone didn't fail the class. Hmm. Uh, I never gave D's. And I had, I made a, a, a point when I was a department chair that none of us would give D's. And, um, but there was always one or two that would fail, maybe three. Uh, so, and the answer always to why would be sex, drugs, rock and roll, parents, you know, just the craziness of the world. But um, yeah, um, I mean, I taught some of the famous kids, you know, the Adam Lamberts and the Billy Beans. But uh, I think a lot of the kids you remember are just regular kids. I, I always tell the story of Armin Yagazarian. Armin uh, was a freshman in my class. And this kid, he was, he was born to be Mr. 88. He would get an 88 all the time. And so first semester, he got a B plus 88. Everything he would do was an 88, it seemed like. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the year, I would call the kids up and, yeah, Gazarian because of the why. So he'd be the last kid i call. And he'd kind of walk up, like, defeated. <laughs> and I said, hey, Armin, let's take a look at the old grade book. He goes, don't even tell me. You're 88. I go, yeah, 
I gave you an 88 A minus. And he goes, what did you give me an A minus for? I said, Armin, I don't know any kid who could be as determined as you and continue to hit your head up against the old B plus wall and not quit. That's an A kid to me. So this kid walks into my room 15 years later and he's got this beret on. He looks all, I don't even recognize him. And he's looking at all the artwork in my class the kids have done. He turns to me and he goes, do you remember me, Mr. Michelle? And I go, are you, are you Armin Yagazarian, Mr. 88? And he goes, that's me. <laughs> he said, I'm an artist now. And uh, he said, you know, you were a pain in the ass, but <laughs> I learned not to quit from you. And if I hadn't, if you hadn't been like that, I would never have written what I am in, as an artist. Uh, it was great. I introduced him to kids. He was a celebrity for a while. And, uh, and you know, he was just a regular kid, but uh, uh, he was, that was my kind of kid too, you know. Um, I, I think I was a lot like that. So, you know, when we were talking about the theme, you said, oh, I believe in that. Uh, and I cut you off because I wanted you to say it, you know, when we were recording. Uh, but, you, mm. but you said, I believe in that. And I had used a bunch of different words. I said, fate, the universe, mm. coincidence. Sure. So can you tell us now what you remember yeah. and what you mean and what I, you believe I, in? I, yeah, I believe that, you know, destiny takes a hand. Like it's that line in Casablanca that Victor Laszlo says to Rick, Rick Blaine, you know. And when destiny calls, you you gotta you gotta act, you gotta move on it. Um, and uh, whenever an opportunity came, I, I was here's a good example of destiny and fate and everything. I was I didn't want to be at the department chair because what a pain in the neck that would be. And um, one of the gals who was a young girl like yourself uh, was she needed to have another person you know, co-chairs and. Uh, and she used to use me as a, you know, kind of a, a mentor. So I walked in one day and I said, so how's it going with the, you know, co-chair? And she goes, oh, no one wants to do it. I go, oh, really? You went through everybody, huh? She goes, yeah, nobody. I mean, it was like all game excuses. I said, okay, great. Well, I'll do it. And she's like, so I'm like, what? I go, yeah, well, you know, you didn't ask me. And I know you didn't ask me because you, you thought I'm too busy. I'm not, yeah. And because you didn't ask me, I figured I'll do it. And I, it's because I knew at that moment that that's, that that's what she really needed. She needed me to, to, to step up and say, come on, kid, we can do this. And, uh, you know, you just have to take those moments. Uh, here's another example of destiny. I finished class one day, and I look at my, and, and the bell rang. So it was the end of school day, sixth period class, American lit, juniors. These kids got all kinds of problems. And um, there's a note on my desk, and uh, it said, uh, Mr. Pichilio, you don't know how important today was. And it, it's signed by this girl named Sammy. And I said to myself, holy cow, I got to find this kid. I got to find out what, what this means. So I run out to the parking lot. <laughs> I stand on one of the cement things. I'm looking around for her and I spot her way at the end of the parking lot. I run out there. <laughs> I got banshee and I catch her. And I say, Sammy, why did you leave that note? What, what? And she goes, oh, Mr. I just had a tough day and boyfriends and life. And, and you just, everything you've said today just, I don't know, it made a difference. And I, because, you know, part of it, your brain is going, I hope they don't do anything bad. I, I mean, you know, when, you, when, when someone does sneaks a note in, because I've had those, I've had those notes that say, you know, literally that say, um, I kill myself 
but I'm too afraid to. How do you leave school that day as a teacher? Right. I mean, wow. Uh, I kept that note too. And yeah. um, you, you then you grab that kid and you, you know, I don't care what's going on. That's more important than anything. And you, you say, what are you, why are you feeling this way? And, you know, and, and it's usually crazy stuff like, oh gosh, I moved from Oregon and I'm kind of overweight and all these people here are so beautiful and I'm never going to have a social life. And I go, what are you talking about? I like you. There's one friend you got. And I'm pretty big. I'm a big, I'm a big deal. You know, I, I, I know a few people. You, know? <laughs> you just try to just make it so that they don't feel so sad and, uh, and that you, they're on your, they're on your calendar. You know, you, you've taken note. So, you know, I, I, uh, I try to keep my antenna up for, for fate and destiny. And, and when things call, you got to go, you got to go for it. Um, I love that. And, you know, I think the 2019 to 2020 words, maybe before, but definitely it became big then would be openness. You know, you're saying you keep your antenna up. That's so, I don't know, right. 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, something like that. But now we say openness. And it's mm. the same thing. Yeah, yeah. It's totally the same thing. They're paying attention. Basically. Paying attention. Yeah. And you can't, you can't just be all about yourself and be paying attention to the world. Just the Well, the worst teachers were the ones who would be the ones that, that stand behind a podium and then and their attitude was, I am going to spray information and knowledge out to you people. And if you don't have your buckets out to catch it, well, that's your problem. And I just, those, I'm sorry. That's like, that's, that is the equivalent of, you know, using the abacus for math. Hmm. You know, you, come on, that is not the world we live in now. And um, one of my calling cards as a teacher was to use music with most everything I did. And that's Bruce Springsteen a lot, if I remember correctly. Bruce Springsteen a lot. Mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, uh, everybody, I mean, if in my room, I, I, my, uh, if you walked in my classroom back in those days, you'd see all album covers all on four corners of the room. And the kids would walk in. It was like going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from didn't matter, you know. I mean, from Stevie Wonder to Bruce Springsteen, it was us up there, and um, I, I, that came from a conversation I had with a math teacher, Joe McEachern, who said, you know, the only thing we really have in common with them nowadays is, is music, which I, I disagreed with. But I mean, I, I agreed with, but I disagreed with. I mean, I think we had more in common with them than that. But but um, that's the language that you could connect with them on, and then if you could speak their language as well as them then you got street cred. I mean, when you knew what Lady Gaga's real name was or what that Madonna, you know, what her real name was, when depending on what generation you're working with, you know, when you explain to kids that her, his name is Jay-Z because he would go to Manhattan and take the J line and the Z line, and that's how he got the name Jay-Z, kids are like, you're not supposed to know that. How do you know that? And I go, because I, I, I make it my business to know that. You know, you know it, so I need to know it. Um, and since I know something about Bruce Springsteen, pay attention, will you? You know, and uh, so. So um, I'd like to go back to the Sammy story, if we can, if I can make you mm -hmm. think about the details of that. I think you said she was, this was junior year lit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I believe that, you know, the people come into your life at the right time, the, the time when someone needs it. But I also believe that books come into people's lives at that right time. Do you happen to remember what you were teaching in class? 
that day that she said she really needed that? You know, I was probably teaching Catcher in the Rye because it was toward the end of the year. And a lot of kids, you know, it's funny, it's hard to teach Catcher in the Rye because Holden Caulfield, let me come out in 1952, I wasn't even born yet. But it, the whole idea of Catcher in the Rye is that, you know, bad things happen to people. And are you going to be a person who helps catch those people when they fall? Whether it's leukemia uh, or cancer or COVID or divorce or whatever. And so, Whatever it was that I was talking about that day, I was speaking about each of us exists to be the catcher in the rye, to, to help people when they fall. And then, of course, the deal is that someone will catch you. That one is, that no matter who you think, how strong you think you are, someday you're going to stumble and fall. And the important thing is to have people around you then who, when you're falling, they don't run away. I mean, and that's, you know, in high school, that's the tough thing because um, there's a lot of fair weather friends, but when things aren't going so well, uh, boy, that's when you find out who's really in your corner. And I think it could have been what I was talking about then. It's been a while. Right. What would you say was the most uh, impactful book that you would teach, you know, maybe one time or maybe over and over and over that you just always saw those results in the, in the kids. Yeah. It's a pretty easy answer to that. I talked to Kill a Mockingbird for 32 years, numerous times. Um, and um, it's interesting because today there's been some controversy about whether it should be taught. And <laughs> because uh, uh, it's a white attorney defending a black man who gets shot 17 times. Uh, in the back. Um, and I, I really don't get how people don't, I don't, I don't get what the controversy is. For example, I recently read uh, American Dirt by Jeannie Cummings. It's, it is a fabulous book. And of course, the complaint is, well, she's, you know, she's not Mexican. She's from Puerto Rico or her husband was, but she's, you know, and it, I get I, there's some fancy term for she's you know, adopting some other culture and writing about it. Look, the bottom line is she wrote a great book. She, she wrote a real book, a great book, a heartfelt novel that, that we all should pay attention to because the crime and violence in Mexico is real. And men, young men um, and young girls are being trapped in, in trapped, killed, um, everything. And so um, I, I uh, To Kill a Mockingbird was very important because the central message was that you really just can't understand somebody until you step in their shoes and walk around in it for a while. Exactly. Uh, Right. I I used to tell them the story of Bill Russell, one of my heroes, basketball player. And um, I asked the kids, you know, who's who's the best basketball player ever? You know, they were pretty much saying Michael Jordan, LeBron James, you know. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't really think so. Because um, how do you know that? You know I mean? Because they must have won a lot, huh? And they was like, ah, yeah, yeah. Like, okay. Well, I got news for you. Um, I know a guy who won two NCAA championships with this little tiny college kid that you probably never heard of. And then it went on and won 11 NBA titles. Okay. That's 13 titles. All right. You got anybody like that? <laughs> look at me. And then I show a picture of Bill Russell. I say, well, he, yeah, he won. He didn't win at North Carolina. He didn't win at Duke. He won at the University of San Francisco. <laughs> Who are they? And I said, you know, so like, 
so here's the deal. He's driving a, his Lamborghini in Atlanta uh, or in Georgia to visit his dad after he's just won the MVP and the national championships and the pull, cops pull him over. I said, now, the rest of you guys can tell me the rest of the story. And they, all the kids look at me and they go, God, tell me the story. And they go, got pulled over? I go, right. And why did he get pulled over? Uh, because a white cop was like seeing a black guy in a Lamborghini. Right. And then what happened? Well, he had to get out of the car and stand up. I go, you guys are good. You guys know the story already. And they go, yeah. And they go, then what happened? I said, okay, here's the catch. <laughs> the difference is that this guy is six foot ten. Okay. And when he stands up with his Lamborghini, he put his hands up and he waves them around. Somebody stops and turns to the cop and says, uh, sir, uh, you don't know this, but uh, that's Bill Russell. Uh, uh, he's an NBA champion. Like, I saw him on TV. I, I don't think you should be arresting him. And he tells that story in a book called, uh, it's called something, the, the word soul is in the title. Anyway, and, and his point was, I, I'm sorry, but you just can't understand black people until you, until you really step in their shoes. And that's how I began to kill a mockingbird with that story. I said, you know, what? we're going to do the best we can, you know, um, but but you got to try. And if you don't try, you're just being hard headed. So I love that book too. So I was I was kind of hoping you were going to say that, um, and I figured you're going to say it. Um, yeah, yeah. So when you when you look back on how your life has sort of ended up. Even the retirement thing, for example, because you weren't planning to retire at the time. It was a something that the opportunity was given and you took fate. it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Did you believe in fate or destiny or whatever before you started going to college? Like, was this something you grew up with? No, I don't think I don't think I ever. I think that, you know, that kind of that kind of knowledge comes to you. uh <sighs> much later in life, you know, when you realize you've made some of the right, right choices. Um, I'll give you one example. I, um, I, when I was uh, 21, 20, 20, 19 or something, you know, I got engaged and, and I didn't, I didn't even know what I was doing. And my father looked at me, he goes, are you getting married? And I go, not that, I'm just engaged. And my father turned to my mother and said, Tessie, get me a drink. My son's an idiot. Um, <laughs> And that's true. It's a true story. And, uh, and you know, my girlfriend at the time, she, we didn't really know what we were doing. And, you know, a couple of years later, we realized this is not happening. And so, but it was, it was one of those times when you just, when you're going in a direction, you're like, whoa, wait a minute, what am I really doing here? And you, you, you self-correct. No, I didn't know about that. I don't think I really kind of figured that stuff out until, you know, maybe I was about 30 years of age or so. Um, and I, <clears throat> I had, at the time, I always kind of thought, you know, I need to meet a girl who's just um, two feet planted in the ground uh, and sensible. And because I'm more the visionary, you know, dreamer ideal thing, you know, and I need a person who organized and sensible. And that's because in, in my real world, all of my great partnerships were, were with people like that. And then, of course, I, 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 this gal moved in next door in the apartment, so I married the girl next door and one up. <laughs> and uh, we've been, we're going on our 35th anniversary coming up soon. And, you know, she's from Vermont, and uh, she can't get that from here. And, um, you know, she, she sees the world and helps 
I mean, like the reason I'm on Zoom right now is that she made sure that I was organized and ready to go. <laughs> Hilarious when you think about it. That's adorable. So, you know, I started off by saying about how you're the first person who's ever been on time or early, and I is this the first time I've ever been late. So, a little story about my view on fate. I think I always kind of believed in it, kind of the same thing as God, kind of different, just very random. And then I read Romeo and Juliet and the fates are in there and they're talked about. And I had, I had known, you know, different mythologies and whatnot, but it was then I was like, ah, ah, I get it now. And, Mm. and the, the fortune wheel and the whole thing. And one of the things that my husband and I say is that irony is our God Mm. that controls our, our lives. And the one time that I'm not ready in the morning, you Mm -hmm. are. And so I literally woke up and I thought, irony. Mm -hmm. Uh, That dramatic irony is a bitch, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, whenever I would teach Romeo and Juliet, I still would like say, please don't drink the poison this time. Come on. I know. Yeah. Don't don't pull out the daggers. Wake up right now. Come come on, you do it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I get you. Um, you know, interestingly, um, when I was with my freshman, at one point we transitioned from Midsummer Night's Dream to Romeo and Juliet, and I thought, oh, I don't know about this freshman, you know, like, but it worked out. And um, and I, I, I didn't have, I, I'm a big believer that when you teach Shakespeare, you really need to, you really need to show the play, you know, because really, and um, and all I had at the time was the the kind of the goofy new version of Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo and uh, Claire Danes. And I call it goofy because this Baz Lothram guy, he's just all over the place. I love and, uh, him, by the way. Well, you, know, you, and you know what? He's very creative. But here's the funny part of the story. So I have this student in my class from London. Uh, he's a freshman. And he goes, this is, I have a question. You've been showing us this vision. And I'm explaining this to my parents. And they thought, perhaps this is a parody. Because it seems so, um, how do you say it here in America? It's all, well, frankly, stupid. <laughs> so I went and purchased the Vithrelli version, and um, would you mind showing this to our class? And I said, he bought the Severelli, because at the time it was really expensive, it was like $50. And I go, great. And so I, I showed that, and uh, I would always show him a couple of clips from the, from the updated version, because, you know, like, you know, like the, the pool scene was really kind of cool. Yeah. And, uh, but uh, that was, <laughs> that got him every time. And I remember the girls would come up to me at the, at the old Zeffirelli version, and they go, oh, that room is killing me, Mr. Mutulio. I just want to take the TV home with me. I go, I know, it's not in there. I'm sorry. Yeah, I love both versions, actually. And you know how you say, don't drink the poison. I, I don't, I don't get upset at that part. Like, you know, they are, they're sort of foolish and very dramatic and they're, they're locked into that sort of emotion. It, It had to happen, I guess. It had to happen. But the part that kills me, and this is the fate part, the notes. Mm hmm right? And the priest, and I'm like, oh my God, you people, I want to shake. I want to smack. I I don't want the fates to go that way with the notes. So it wouldn't have ever happened to begin with. Yeah, I know. There's so many times it could have stopped, but, you know, uh, and of course, if you look at it nowadays, I mean, there's this, uh, 
there are so many things that could have happened differently and our country could be in such a different situation if we had just done a few things differently and now we find ourselves you know with uh with a lot of with more deaths than any other country in the world and uh, you know it's uh it's uh it's it's very easy i used to i remember one principal came up to me once and said you do a fantastic job of transference and i said oh really <laughs> great i had no idea what he's talking about but what he meant was it was like the new cool hip uh, administrator word uh, was that you talk about whatever you're talking about and you make it relative to what's going on in the world today and um and i think it'd be very easy I think it would be very easy to talk about the world and connect it to literature today. I think the hard part would be to um, to come across um, even-handedly and not to be so overtly partisan in your classroom. Um, one of my essays that I had written for Medium was, uh, was about the best question a student ever asked me. It was a little Asian boy came up to me. He was a freshman. I had been with him almost a whole year. And he said, Mr. John, I have a question for you. Are, you. are you a Republican or a Democrat? And I looked at him and said, you know, Andrew, that is a fascinating question. That might be the best question any student has ever asked me. And he's looking like, really? Really? You know why? And he goes, no. Because, I said, because you don't know the answer, do you? And he goes, no, that's why I'm asking. And I said, great. See, that's the best compliment you can give me. I have been teaching you for whatever, 28 weeks, and you really can't tell whether I'm a Republican or Democrat. I've been giving you all this information about things. And he goes, well, I have a feeling, but I really don't know. <laughs> so here's my answer, Andrew. I'm an American, just like you. Have a nice day. And, you know, so that's, that's I think, the challenge in the classroom right now is to, to, to be... Uh, to be to get out the facts and to make sure that that you're accurate with it. Yeah, I I couldn't imagine trying to walk that tightrope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and like you said, on on stage mm -hmm. for five five times a day to walk that tightrope that would be that would be really tough. So um, let's finish up by focusing a little bit more on your books and how you became a writer and. You were doing that while you were teaching. Yeah. My uh, second day of my last year, I wrote meetings at the Metaphor Cafe, and I promised myself I'd finish that graduation day, and I did. And then in my first year of retirement, I wrote the sequel because I had been going to schools with the first book, and people were saying, well, what happened to them? The four of them, when they were juniors, what happened in their senior year? So I wrote the sequel. And then um, a year or two after that, I said, you know, I feel like Pinocchio. I, I, I want to be a real writer. And, and not that a, the young adult books weren't real, but I wanted to write in my voice and not in the voice of, of, of a high school kid. So that's when I wrote The Restoration, which is, um, it, which is a semi-true story about the uh, movie theater on, um, in Coronado that was built in the 40s and then fell into disrepair. And then these couples get together with the community and, and restore it into its beautiful Art Deco self. And, but, and in restoring the theater, which is really a metaphor, they restore their love for each other. Um, so it becomes a love story in that respect. And I, I really, I really love that book. Um, and I've spoken on the island of Coronado a couple of times, um, a number of times. And uh, they've been very supportive, um, the newspaper there as well. And Meetings at the Metaphor Cafe um, was a story I wanted to write about. Um, 
I wanted to set my first story in Encinitas. And I wanted to talk about um, my main characters have something go wrong for them, talking about fate, that you, um, you can't control. And, and, and because they can't control it, 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 when the physical falls apart, the question is, can you control the mental? And so um, the, the woman in the story uh, is, a, is a dancer. And at a certain point, you know, her body just fails her. And uh, the man in the story begins to lose his eyesight um, as a teacher. And how do you, how do, you do that? Um, and I had read about people who have a particular type of uh, disease in their eyes. Frank Bruni is experiencing a little bit of that right now, the writer from the New York Times. And so and then the two of them discover that together they can fix those things. Um, and uh, she becomes a yoga teacher and, and he becomes her student. And, um, uh, and they meet at Moonlight Beach here in Encinitas. And so that was, uh, I have to admit, that is a little more on the romantic side. But, um, uh, but, but both of the, the that, that book talks about how anxiety and depression can really take over you when, when the physical starts to fa fail you. And um, from what I was just reading the other day, um, that issue of anxiety and depression is now a fairly rampant one in our high school class classrooms. Uh, I know that um, my books are being taught in the high schools. Uh, certain districts have approved of them. And uh, so, you know, I, 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 I really, I think that it was, I was, I think the whole idea that I retired from teaching is allowed me to, to do the other thing I wanted to do, which was to have, turn my voice onto paper. And as I've explained to people before, one advantage I have over a lot of authors is when you go see an author speak, it's like, it's really like watching a paint, paint dry on a wall. I mean, these guys are just boring. Even when they read from their books, they're boring. And uh, I've been gifted with the ability to speak about my books without reading from them. And, um, and of course, you know, I try to blend music into them as well. And, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, nice thing is that uh, Amazon carries all my books. Now Barnes & Noble, their website carries them. Um, and I have them on Kindle. Now, not, I've still not cracked the, the traditional publishing thing. I, I've self-published them all. And I did get advice from one of my agents who said to me, she was my agent. She said, you know, the thing about you is you have a team that you've hired. You have a designer, you have an interior designer, you've got editors. I mean, you, you have your own company. I said, I do. She goes, you're doing it the right way. I mean, a person picks up one of your books and goes, this isn't a self-published book. I mean, I've been, I've done book clubs and all the women, they'd have no idea. I have to tell them, no, I did this myself. And they're like, how did you do that? Well, you have to invest in good people and some time and and I know I'm not really interested in making profit per se. I'm interested in kind of just breaking even or get making enough on a book to take my wife to Hawaii or something. But uh, that's why I kind of want to give the shot here with this new book, which is more political and courtroom drama. I think it probably, um, it might go. I don't know. You know, when you go into writing, when you're whatever, 55, people say to you, where have you been? And there are no shortcuts in life. I mean, you have to work it and work it and work it. And so I don't expect anyone to give me anything. You just got to keep, you keep pounding the pavement and see if you can crack in a little bit.
do you think that you're going to be writing for the rest of your life? Mm, you got more yeah, books right. in you? Yep, I've been writing essays for Medium that have been curated. Those are nice. Um, and, and I have a lot of followers on Medium or uh, in my blog. I kind of stopped doing my blog lately because I find Medium to be a little more interesting to work with. Um, and the nicest thing is for me is when I get invited to speak either to a book club or to a high school or middle school. Um, it's kind of a bummer now with COVID because you know, I'm not going to be speaking to any high school classes. I spoke at Grossmont High School recently and, uh, and uh, at Mount Carmel High School. I usually make one appearance at Mount Carmel every year. And those are great. I mean, you, yeah. I, well, as soon as I walk into a classroom, I just, I'm, I'm back in my element. One of the things I discovered, Lauren, is that um, I used to think I could go to a high school and, you know, do five shows and talk to the teacher's kids five people. No way. No, man, I am out of gas after an hour. <laughs> Mr. Pachilio does not, does not have what he used to have. I can throw a fastball for about an hour and then it's done. <laughs> well, maybe you need to pump yourself up with the Bruce Springsteen before you go on for your round two or something, Absolutely. because, you know, he's still not every he's day, but still four-hour shows, yeah. Well... Perhaps this, this would be a good story to end with. I, um, I mentioned earlier on the show, uh, Frank Lopez, a doctor in Manhattan. Well, my son was home once, and my son works in New York, and they said to me, Dad, you've got to see Bruce Springsteen on Broadway. Come on. I mean, you, of all people, have to see him. I said, yeah, right. Like, I'm going to fly to New York, and I'm actually going to get a ticket. Forget about it. It's not going to happen. He said, well, let me see if I'm going to work on it. So he gets me a good airfare, and he tells me that Brooklyn has opened up a new pod hotel. It's like kind of this Japanese-style thing. It's like a little teeny room, and it's brand new. And, Dad, you can get it for $99 a night. I go, oh, okay. And he's just right down the street from me. I go, oh, okay. Well, aren't we forgetting something, son? I don't have a ticket. And he goes, yeah, well, you know, um, didn't you tell me that one of your alumni uh, stood in line and, and I waited, got a ticket, you know, because somebody didn't show up? I go, yeah. Well, let's do that. We can do that. I go, well. So I flew out. And I was going to stay three nights. And I figured one of the nights I'm going to get in, you know. So I, I show up at the theater about an hour and a half ahead of time. And dang it, there's already somebody in line ahead of me for the wait, waiting to, for a you know, cancellation. And it's this little guy and this kid. And I'm like, oh, great. Some guy and his kid are going to get in. And the guy turns around and says, hey, Mr. Pachilio, how you doing? <laughs> and it's Frank Lopez and his son. I said, Dr. Lopez, what are you doing here? And he goes, I'm here to make sure you are first in line for a ticket. Because I heard you're in New York. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. It's raining and everything. And he goes, no, no, no. And as a matter of fact, I even really better news. I just heard that some celebrity person isn't here, isn't coming. And if you go in right now, you can get a ticket. I go, really? So I walk in there. And for, I don't know, $700, I'm sitting seven rows from Bruce Springsteen dead center. I know. I wrote an essay called Seven Rows from Springsteen on Medium. And uh, it's really kind of a story about how you know, teachers get paid back in most, the ways they would never expect. I mean, after I bought the ticket, I had like two hours to kill. And Frank took me to dinner and we talked. And then I saw the show. I, I called my wife. I said, God, I'm, never gonna, I'm not going to complain about my age or I'm going to keep going because look, Bruce is still going. You know? and it was oh. so inspiring. I, I was amazed. That's a great story. But how did Frank Lopez know that you needed to be in line? I was on Facebook and I had said, hey, guys, I'm going to New York, trying to see Springsteen. I'm arriving here. And for any of you New York alumni, you know, I'll be around and I can get coffee with you. And Frank texted me back on Facebook and messaged me and said, hey, great. 
you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get a hold of you, Bob. And here's my cell and blah, blah, blah. And I, this was the first night. So I didn't really, I really had just gotten there and, you know, I hadn't, didn't expect really to get in the first night. And I figured I'd get coffee with Frank maybe the next day. And bang, there he is, you know, so it was great. Wow. Well, that is a great story to end on because no, it kind of encapsulates it. everything where you've mm -hmm. got, like you said, the point of the story is how teachers get paid back, but it's also about destiny. Well, it's about destiny, but it's about also putting it out there. You know, you put it out into the universe, what you wanted to happen and it worked out. The universe made it mm -hmm. happen. All of the feelings that Frank still had for you was like, I can do this for him. And he, you, you know, we have to let people in. We have to put our intention out there in the world. And we have to also say, I'm going to act again for me, that willingness to say, I'm a busy doctor who has a kid, but I'm going to stop my mm -hmm. life for a couple of days to figure this out for this important person in my life. So yeah. what a great story. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed having you on Revel Revel. Well, thank you. It's been the highlight of my week. Oh, it really, you're like my first real adult that I've had on <laughs> because you were an adult when I was a kid. So that's how it feels. So thank you for being on. You're very welcome. This has been total, total pleasure. Well, so that was Mr. Pachilio. And you heard how he said that he's never really broken into the regular bookstore game with his books. And we've been talking about how to do that, how to get him to Colorado. Maybe he won't make enough money to get a trip to Hawaii, but maybe he could at least uh, get enough sales to come out to Colorado and do the bookstores here, including my bookstore, the Page Turner Bookstore in Conifer, of course. If you can make COVID go away, then we can make this happen. And since Mr. Pachilio talked about how we have to be there for each other and have to be the catcher for each other when our loved ones stumble and fall, that's why I named this episode that because the class of 87's theme song was Stand By Me. So thanks for listening. Thanks for being patient waiting for this episode. And tune in next week for another brand new episode from Revel Revel.